Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the HMS Colleging Hear My Story podcast, episode four. Today is all about COVID and the science behind the virus and the vaccine. My name is Maddie Dunnerman. I'm a senior here at Lehigh studying biology and health medicine society. I'm M. Thampo, and I'm also a senior here at Lehigh, and I am studying journalism and health medicine and society. Yes, and today we are joined by our very special guest from the biology department here at Lehigh, Dr. Tartaglia. Hi, uh, thank you for having me on today. It's a real pleasure to be with you guys. Um, yep, uh, my name is, uh, feel free to call me Larry. I joined the staff here <laughs> at Lehigh in spring 2020. Uh, so my first semester was uh, the beginning of the pandemic and online learning. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, before that, I, I got my humble beginnings as a scientist at Rutgers University in the land, land far, far away in New Jersey. And I was a biology major. And towards the latter part of my biology career, I focused on studying uh, extremophilic organisms, which are organisms that survive at really the limits of um, the planet. Um, from there, I went to the University of Florida uh, for my PhD. Um, at that point in my life, I decided I wanted to uh, take science really as far as I could. And I thought, what a better way than, than moving to a place where I've always wanted to live. And that's something I tell my students all the time. So at one point in time when I was younger, my dream was to retire in the state of Florida and buy a convertible. And instead of waiting to do that, I did it all in my 20s. So I, I moved down there, I, I bought a convertible Mustang, and uh, I had a very lovely time in, in Florida. I was part of this uh, umbrella program within the College of Medicine there. And it was very interdisciplinary. We had opportunities to study all different types of research. I wound up joining the biochemistry and molecular biology department. And that was really the advent of my uh, virology background. I joined a lab that studied uh, non-pathogenic viruses. So these are viruses that actually don't cause any harm to humans or there's no disease state associated with them. And many years ago, researchers realized, well, we could take these viruses since they don't do anything bad and use them to our advantage. After all, viruses are probably one of the best things on the planet at infecting our cells. So what researchers do, in this case, we use it for gene therapy purposes, where we'll remove the viral nucleic acids, that's DNA or RNA, and replace it with therapeutic DNA and use that as a delivery vehicle and mechanism to uh, bring that specific gene into a patient who may be devoid of a gene or have a mutation in the gene that's resulting in a disease, a disease state. Uh, we'd study the, the three-dimensional structure of these viruses and also their basic biology and from there, I moved to Boston and I was awarded a fellowship at Harvard Medical School where I joined a, a very high-powered laboratory, uh, also focused on uh, vaccine development. Uh, I studied many different viruses there for a number of different disease states, including Zika virus, uh, HIV. I studied uh, the virus, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, shortly, that's used to deliver the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, and it was, a, it was a really wonderful experience. It was one of those unique experiences where you can work in a laboratory that not only comes up with the idea and the concept and the design of a vaccine vector, but it's also tested in vitro. It's tested in vivo in different animal model systems. Uh, they test preclinical trials at the lab and they also have a clinical trials extension unit from there. Uh, so I left the lab back in uh, 2019 at some point towards the latter part of the year and uh, during my time, I also developed a very strong passion for teaching and education. And I started uh, teaching at a small liberal arts college called Emmanuel College in Boston, very close to where I worked. And I said, this is what I wanna do for the rest of my life. And I applied for different positions. I didn't have a lot of teaching experience at the time. Um, I'm lucky Lehigh took a chance on me. I had originally a six month appointment as a visiting assistant professor. So that basically took me through the spring term and I wasn't sure what was gonna happen after that. So I moved my wife uh, also with me uh, from, from Boston. We're happy we're getting closer to, to family in South Jersey, but I wasn't sure what was gonna happen uh, since the appointment was for a very short period of time. Another visiting professor position opened up, which I'm currently on now and I applied for and I was awarded. And uh, a few months back, I was told that I'm being brought on as a permanent faculty member starting 
uh, this summer after my current appointment's up. So I plan on being at Lehigh for a very long time, hopefully. Well, we're really excited to have you, Larry. Thank you so much um, for agreeing to join us. And I think all the perspective that you're going to be able to bring will be really beneficial to our audience. So kind of kicking off our first topic of today's podcast, we're going to talk about the basic science behind the COVID virus, the different variations. And for you guys listening, don't panic. We're really going to try to explain it in a way that everyone can understand whether you have a science background or not. Um, so if we can kind of jump in on what is COVID, what's the virus, and why is the science behind it, you know, kind of a big deal. SARS-CoV-2, that's the name of the virus that uh, was originally found in, in Wuhan, China. And uh, SARS-CoV-2 is no different from any other virus in the fact that its goal in life is to infect us, replicate in our bodies, and use us as a host cell. And, and make progeny virus. And ultimately that's what viruses wanna do because they want to keep spreading. Uh, so COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus and that is its genetic material. Uh, it serves as a, as a blueprint. If you think about, if you've ever seen an architectural design that has the coloring in blue and then everything in white, uh, the architectural design serves as, uh, as the blueprint for creating something. And in the same case, it's very analogous to the RNA that's part of SARS-CoV-2 that serves as the blueprint to create progeny virus. Uh, so we, we've learned that it's an RNA virus, and I think most people have probably heard that at, at some point in time. Um, and also we've seen images, uh, whether you're walking around campus, if you've been to any recreation areas, and it mentions about social distancing and COVID, there's an image, a very classic image now, of uh, the virus, which is shown in gray, and it has these red regions that come off of it. And those regions are what we call spike proteins. And the spike proteins are necessary and critical for SARS-CoV-2 to bind to our cells and also permit entry into our cells. So that has been a major uh, focus in the development of vaccines, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, in a few minutes. Uh, now, you also mentioned the word variations. This is a very <laughs> difficult, uh, this is a really a misnomer in the scientific community, particularly with virologists, and there's not a whole heck of a lot of agreement on this front. So there are variations that have existed, and we call those uh, variants. And the way I like to look at it is like this. Back in December 2019, uh, that time frame, when individuals in Wuhan, China, they were experiencing this pneumonia-like illness, and we didn't know what the causative agent was at that time. So what any good physician would do, they, they removed lung fluid from those individuals and they put them on cells. And those cells, we showed that we could propagate this virus. So we called that an isolate. So the, the original isolates of SARS-CoV-2 were identified in Wuhan, China. Um, and propagated in tissue culture. From there, obviously the virus has spread now and we've all learned that. There, were, there was a, an, another variant that existed that started spreading around uh, the world, although it wasn't really any different than the original isolates that were identified in Wuhan until the UK variant, the South African variant, and the Brazilian variant came on the scene. Uh, these have all have different mutations that exist uh, that enhance the binding of that spike protein. Remember that red portion that protrudes from the viral capsid surface. Uh, so it can bind stronger and tighter to our cells. So it makes it more virulent. And that has been one of the issues. And we have said very early on, at least scientists have said that the key is to try to develop a vaccine and combat this and thwart this virus away as soon as you can. The longer the virus has to uh, circulate in a population, the more ability it has to adapt and change through mutations. And the reason for that is as it's circulating through the population affecting people, there is immune system pressure that's on certain individuals. And that immune system pressure triggers the virus to develop escape mechanisms. And one of the ways that it can do that is by mutating its, its RNA. And what we have found is 
uh, the spike gene in particular has been a site of mutation. Um, so that has presented, we aren't exactly sure just yet, but that may be presenting some difficulty in the virus as not being you know, 100% effective per se. So you mentioned your career as a scientist before going into academia. I guess if you could talk a bit about you know, what goes into the vaccine development process, especially with you know, all the vaccines that are on the market for COVID now, and um, if rushing the vaccine, talk about that a bit as well. Sure, uh, so my postdoctoral fellowship, uh, as I mentioned, was at Harvard Medical School I worked in the the Dan Baruch Laboratory, and uh, our laboratory a number of years ago, we were the first lab in the world to develop an effective uh, Zika virus vaccine showing efficacy in animal model systems. Uh, so no surprise to me uh, that they were really one of the first groups to develop uh, an effective vaccine. Uh, so they partnered with Johnson & Johnson, uh, I think very early on in the process. And in my opinion, the science is actually fairly simple. They're using a common cold virus, which a lot of this have probably heard now at this point, is called adenovirus. And in general, adenovirus has ability to infect our cells, uh, but doesn't really cause any long-term damage. Uh, doesn't make us too sick. Uh, we can still go on about our, our daily lives. So they're using this virus as a delivery vehicle. Again, uh, you know, a, a notion that we uh, discussed earlier in the podcast where what's better at infecting cells and viruses. So this is a perfect example of that. And the Johnson Johnson is really uh, the foundation of this technology is based on this adenoviral system. And it's a virus that's been used uh, many times for other uh, pathogens too, as a vaccine modality. Um, so in this case, uh, we're harnessing the power of this adenovirus and we had removed the viral DNA and what we've done was we put in this spike gene, so the nu nucleic acid material that makes uh, the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2, that is inside and housed within this adenovirus. And as some of you have probably already received a vaccination, it's generally an intramuscular vaccination in your arm, that if, you ha if it's the Johnson Johnson in particular, uh, it's going to be the adenovirus with the SARS-CoV-2 nucleic acid material in there the virus is going to go and bind and infect our cells and release that spike gene. And for those of you who do remember your high school biology, uh, there's a process that's called the central dogma and it goes from DNA to RNA to protein. So in this case, the spike gene from SARS-CoV-2 is gonna rely on the host cell machinery to create that spike protein. And now once you have the spike protein in the cell, all good things can happen. Your body's going to mount an immune response against that spike protein. So if you were to become infected with SARS-CoV-2, which has, again, that red spike protein protruding from the surface, your body's going to recognize that specifically. So that is really the foundation of how the Johnson & Johnson vaccine works. Uh, it's based on an adenovirus technology, which again is nothing new, it's been used to fight Zika virus, HIV, Ebola. Now on the other hand, when we compare that to our mRNA-based vaccines, uh, namely Pfizer and Moderna, it's a technology that is not necessarily new, but it is a technology that was approved by the FDA for the first time. And that can create you know, some issues for certain people, uh, which is uh, completely uh, understandable. And the technology is a bit different where mRNA in general is just not as stable as the vaccine modality that Johnson & Johnson is using. So they have to encapsulate the mRNA within materials that we call lipids. And we have to store it at very cold temperatures too. And that um, was thought of being a potential issue if, if the handling of the vaccines is not done appropriately, if they're left out at room temperature for um, too long of a period and that could create an issue. But those are the, the really the three main vaccines that are on the scene now. So we have the Johnson Johnson again, which is the adenovirus-based system, and then Moderna and Pfizer, they're based on mRNA technology that was just approved for the first time. Now within the last few days, uh, AstraZeneca has come out with more and more data, and that's actually based on an adenovirus that uh, is slightly different than the one Johnson & Johnson is using. 
but uh, nonetheless, the technology is, is very similar. And the way the process works is people will test these vaccine modalities first uh, in vitro. And they want to see if they can actually make the spike protein itself using whatever vaccine modality they're doing. Once they uh, demonstrate that the spike protein can be made, they'll test it in animal model systems and they're going to look for vaccine elicited immunity. And that could be antibody responses, things that we call T cell responses. Uh, so far, it appears that it's mostly an antibody response that's being generated by the vaccines. Um, but there's probably some T cell engagement and activation too. Uh, but that may be beyond the scope of what we're talking here. So once we deem in an animal model that it is possible to have an effective vaccine that can elicit immune responses, uh, we, we do that generally first in the mouse model. And if it works there, we'll test it uh, through preclinical trials uh, using rhesus macaques. Uh, so once the modalities are tested there and we can demonstrate that they are effective, we'll bring those into human clinical trials and we'll go through different phases. Uh, there's a phase one, there's a phase two and phase three. And, and for the most part, these phases generally take many, many years. In the case of HIV, we've been working on uh, trials for 30 years or so, and we do, still do not have an effective vaccine. Um, so I can see the trepidation of uh, individuals around the country and the world uh, thinking that the vaccine was uh, developed too quickly, uh, which we'll talk about in a second. Generally, the way the phases work in a clinical trial, phase one is based in identifying safety and dosage. Just wants to make sure that individuals do not become sick. It's generally a very small cohort of people. Uh, it could be anywhere from 20 to 100 people. A phase two clinical trial is rooted in efficacy and side effects, and, and we expand the amount of individuals who are part of uh, this trial. And then a phase three is we're talking thousands of people with the Johnson & Johnson trial that was upwards of 45,000 or so people. And a general phase three trial could be anywhere from one to uh, seven years and even more than that. Uh, but those are the average time. So uh, this was done very, very quickly, obviously. And I could go back to the Zika virus epidemic. So when that occurred, um, just like COVID-19, it became a race to the finish. And I saw a lab that has an incredible amount of expertise from the virology and the vaccinology to the protein expression to the immunology. Um, a lab that's very well equipped to handle all of that. A lab that has 60 plus people, and I'm, again, I'm speaking about my postdoctoral fellowship lab. And I saw everything come together in such a coordinated fashion uh, from developing the vaccine to the preclinical trials and then moving into clinical trials. And shortcuts, shortcut was never a, a thought uh, in our thought process. And the reason for that is there's so many different qualifications to show that you have data that's legit. There's a peer review process that's part of that. Uh, there are controls that you have to run in your experiments that are part of the process. Um, so it's not easy to really falsify data per se. Um, so I thought if I knew it would be possible to develop a, a COVID vaccine, depending on uh, SARS-CoV-2's its mutation rate, it turns out that it's not mutating nearly as much as some other viruses, HIV, for example. So I knew it was going to be possible. Um, if I were to say if there are any shortcuts, uh, what scientists have done now at this point, particularly in the clinical trials, they've teased apart some of the data. Um, so if someone were to tell me that the vaccine is not going to cause any harm 10 years down the road, I'm going to say, no, that's not true. We don't know that. Uh, we don't understand the long-term effects. However, it's not like these vaccine modalities particularly the Johnson Johnson one, it's the first time it's ever been used. Uh, these have been used for other things. We've been studying these vaccines for many years, so it's not a foreign thing to us. And in some cases, again, with the Johnson & Johnson, all we really do, if you compare using this particular modality, the adenovirus, to treat Zika virus versus treating SARS-CoV-2, all we really do is we remove, instead of using the spike gene for SARS-CoV-2, 
when we used that vaccine for Zika virus, we had a different region which is part of the envelope. And you're really just swapping out one thing for another, but everything remains the same, um, which is why it was so quick and so easy to develop. I mean, I'm never gonna say easy because it's a tremendous amount of work that went into it, but why we got a vaccine so quickly. Um, so at, at different points in time, I had to step back um, and think more as a scientist and, and refresh my mind that uh, this is safe. Um, I don't <clears throat> think corners are being cut in any ways, uh, but I can understand why people do think that. And I, had, I did have to remind myself of that at different times, especially when you hear in the media, some of these numbers start changing with efficacy, and that's happened multiple times, even AstraZeneca. As of a few days ago, they were changing that 70 plus percentile by a, a series of percentage points. And those type of things, they are, they are worrisome. But ultimately, I knew science was going to prevail. I have faith and I trust the science that's being done. I've seen it on the front lines. And um, I was confident that was going to work. That's awesome. And that's really great insight. And I feel like we're kind of playing Mythbusters here. So in today's you know, world, we have a lot of options and we're really grateful for options for Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson. And I know for signing up for vaccines, sometimes you don't always have the choice. You kind of sign up and then whatever the facility is distributing, that's what you're going to be getting. There's a common misconception that one vaccine is better than the other. People are saying, I want Pfizer, I want Moderna, or I want J&J. From your perspective, is one vaccine truly better than the other? Is there a benefit to getting one over the other? Can you kind of combat that idea that, you know, one might be better than the other, or we need to pick and choose which one we get? I love this question. And the reason I, I love it so much is because I've had so many family members and friends uh, sort of treat this whole process as they're going to a restaurant and they're looking on a menu and they're gonna be able to choose from what vaccine modality they wanna use. And obviously it doesn't really work like that. Um, it depends on the healthcare facility that you're going to, uh, where you're receiving the vaccine, the vaccine that they have on hand and that's what you're gonna receive. So number one, um, I tell my friends and family that you just take whatever one is available at that time and the sooner you take it, the better off you're going to be. Uh, because there's not a very stark difference uh, among the different vaccines. And the reason I think people do think there is is because we hear about these of Pfizer and Moderna showing 90 plus percentile efficacy, while Johnson & Johnson may be in a 60 plus percentile efficacy. Um, so it doesn't really work like that. And we aren't comparing apples to apples here. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine clinical trials, they were done at a later time point than the Moderna and the Pfizer. And the reason why that is significant is because we had new variants and more virulent variants circulating the population at those times. The location of the clinical trials were done in different locations too. Um, so there's other things really at play here. Um, what I think is most important is all the vaccines are essentially showing 100% efficacy of preventing you know, hospitalization, but more importantly, death. And when you're in the middle of a pandemic, we aren't necessarily looking for what we call sterilizing immunity, which is 100% preventing the virus from infecting our cells. What we want to do is just stop uh, the progression uh, of deaths in this country and around the world. And I think that's what the that these specific vaccines are going to show. Uh, but in my opinion, we can't really make comparisons. Uh, a clinical trial set up in such a specific manner that uh, all three of these clinical trials, the ones that have been the most important so far, again, the Pfizer, the Moderna, and the Johnson & Johnson, they would have, all have to be run essentially identically to compare them uh, to one another. So for that reason, I don't really get into all the numbers that are associated with it because I recognize that there are other factors at play. Um, so another hot conversation right now is the idea of herd immunity and kind of banking on everyone either getting vaccinated or feeling more like you're able to go out and do more things because you've already had COVID or your friends or your peers, coworkers have had COVID. Can you kind of speak to the notion of what truly is herd immunity and what do we need to achieve herd immunity to have that true sense of security and not just that idea that we're secure because we either have the vaccine or 
have had COVID before. Herd immunity is getting to a place where most of the population have either become infected with the virus itself or have received the vaccine. And when we say most of the population, there's not a hard and fast number that's associated with that. We're talking maybe 70% upwards of 85% of the population. Um, I think this is a really important question. Uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, this we learned a few phrases that we never really knew before, right? Social distancing was one, and I never even thought about social distancing. And then this concept of herd immunity. I heard a lot of friends, uh, people in the media, say we have to just let this virus run its course and go through the population and we'll eventually reach herd immunity. And it was so naive uh, to, to make a comment like that. Uh, and, and I completely understand why people would say that. Um, I ran some numbers, more so in the beginning of the pandemic, and, and the way things were moving, for us to reach herd immunity, it meant we we're gonna have to lose millions of people's lives in this country. And uh, that just doesn't make sense. So if you're going to reach herd immunity, you wanna do it through vaccination, not actually through a virus that has already killed a half a million people uh, to, to run its course through a population. So that's number one. Number two, which is probably should be number one, is we don't even know if that would be possible to reach herd immunity. And I want you guys to think about it like this. Let's say an individual gets infected with SARS-CoV-2 virus in March 2020. Whether it's asymptomatic or symptomatic, they'll develop an antibody response against the virus. If the virus mutates enough, which again, we didn't know at that period of time when all these suggestions were being made, well, they might be able to get reinfected with that, a new variant of the virus, let's say in June or July. So the question is, would herd immunity be reached? No herd immunity in that case wouldn't be possible. And we didn't have the data to you know, make a presumption like that. So when the media and people were saying that we should just let it run its course, that was really bothersome for me because I didn't think we, I, we just didn't have the information, the data to know um, if that was a realistic thing or not. So if you're gonna reach herd immunity, my opinion has to be done through vaccination. And that's exactly what we're shooting for now. Right. So for all my peers out there listening right now, this doesn't mean because your friend group had COVID that now you're safe and you're going to go out and you're kind of immune to the idea of spreading the uh, virus to other people. Because I think that's a really other big misconception is you can still spread the virus, from my understanding, if you've even received the vaccine or if you've had it before. Is that correct? That is correct. We've heard the terminology asymptomatic spread. And I, I can understand, I could put myself in the shoes of a young individual, which I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later, and and understand, hey, like I've been infected or let, let me just get infected, we'll have this COVID party. And you've heard all these crazy stories that have occurred at universities around the country. And, um, you know, it's, I understand that students want to have fun and go about their daily lives. And again, we'll talk about this um, because it's such an important concept, the psychological aspect of how uh, COVID has affected people. Um, but if you, if you really think about it, you have to tell the students, hey, every time you're going out there and you're putting yourself in that situation, you're killing somebody's grandmother or grandfather. And that's like, it's, it's a harsh reality, but you have to say yeah. that because that's, like, that's, the, that's the truth of it all. We learned halfway during the pandemic that a lot of the spread was happening through 20-something-year-olds. And uh, you know, that's what happens if you put yourself in harm's way. And it's not just other Lehigh students or Lehigh professors or staff or, you know, janitorial workers here. It's the greater Bethlehem community or the greater community at other campuses or in your hometown. And you really have to be aware that not everyone is as privileged as you to either live in and, you know, have their own bedroom to be able to quarantine and isolate. A lot of people still have to go and show up to work every day. Um, to have some type of income to support their family. So I think it's really important to kind of check our behaviors. And we kind of spoke about this on podcast too, if you didn't check that one out, um, about being mindful of what you're doing and the circumstances in which you're doing it. So um, there have been many speculations on how people of color are untrusting of the virus. And by extension, that they are skeptical of the vaccine. 
Um, what are your thoughts on this phenomenon and what steps do you think the nation should take in order to ensure the communities that are being hit the hardest because of health inequities and other things are also getting vaccinated? Yeah, very important question. Uh, probably uh, the most important question that's been asked so far. The COVID-19 pandemic has disproportionately affected, uh, as you mentioned, people of color, so black individuals, uh, other minorities in this country in severity, mortality, economics. And if we think back uh, what we've experienced over the last year, there have been a lot of people, you know, particularly billionaires in this country who have uh, seen their fortunes expand while the vast majority of people have uh, lost jobs uh, they suffered economically, uh, but also health-wise, which I think really leads into your question. Uh, I remember reading a study from the University of Chicago that showed that lowest income workers, they have been the most affected by the pandemic. And guess what? There is a very direct correlation with health inequality with low income workers, where they do not have access to health care. There has been a lot of medical mistrust, which is a very important terminology that you used. Um, even in my biology classes, we discussed the cases of uh, Henrietta Lacks, who was an individual whose cells were essentially taken from her uh, because they, had, they displayed a very unique property and propagated and now used in labs all around the world. And it's been a constant fight with her family and the court system to you know, regain access to those cells and to really take them away from you know labs that are using them now uh, it's been a very uh, sad travesty to to watch over the years so there's been a lot of medical mistrust uh, that's in the communities and there have been polls that have been completed uh, by mi minority individuals based on a lot of the questions that you're asking today and the overwhelming majority in the responses in those polls suggest that uh, minorities people of color they do not believe uh, certain things that are being told to them. Uh, they, a lot of them, again, they don't have access to providers. So there's been a lot of mistrust out there, and I think it starts at the top. There's been mixed messages sent on many different levels, right? The year that was 2020 was, the, I think the question of the year was to wear a mask or not to wear a mask. And we were told from health officials in the beginning, don't wear a mask. Later at times, we were told to wear the mask. Uh, people in government were not wearing a mask, but another faction in government were wearing a mask. And you don't know what to do in those times. And and I think it's very easy if you are hearing mixed messages just to throw your hands up in the air and say, I don't know what to believe, so I'm just going to go about my daily life the way I've been living it. And, you know, I can completely understand that. So the question really becomes, how do we break some of these medical mistrusts or, or relay some of this information into the community. Um, how do we affect change in a positive way? Um, I think it's very difficult uh, because there has been so much mistrust over the years and because there's just been so much misinformation in 2020 that people just don't know what to believe. Uh, from the government standpoint, what I think we really need to do is have a very concrete and consistent message right from the top to the bottom, and we're talking, you know, the highest level of government to the states. And that message should be amenable in different ways, but it needs to be consistent. Uh, and the reason for that is you do have regions, uh, we'll say Philadelphia, for example, where Philadelphia, there are a lot of impoverished portions of the city where those individuals who do not have access to all this information. Whereas if you compare those individuals to uh, some of the wealthy in the Philadelphia suburbs, you know, specifically uh, the main line, for example, uh, they still have access to their healthcare system um, and they're gonna be given information in certain ways. So I think we need a very clear and consistent message, but it has to be amenable where, uh, depending on the, the demographic and the population and what they have access to, they may need more information. And it, ne it needs to be delivered in a way that they're gonna feel comfortable with. Uh, I feel like it's, it's when you're just told to do something and you aren't told why, there's not going to be a level of trust there. And you know it's going to take, in my opinion, more than just the minorities taking care of the minorities in this country. This is 
a perfect time where we all have to stand up uh, for one another. Um, but unfortunately, uh, you know, I, th I think it's happening in some cases, but not nearly enough as uh, 2020 was a very polarizing year and a lot came to light in this country. Yeah, I completely agree. The virus doesn't care about your race or gender when it's trying to infect a cell. So we need to make sure that we have a vaccine that people, everyone, you know, feel comfortable taking so that they're protected because ultimately the virus isn't just going to stop because, you know, of the color of your skin or your sexuality. It needs to really be something that we're all in for one another so that we can be protected against this thing. Exactly. I think, you know, if you really break it down to a, a extremely fundamental level, the virus sees all of us, as I mentioned earlier, as humans mm -hmm. and nothing else matters for that virus. And it's really the humans that make things different. And we put people in this country and really around the world in certain situations where their community is going to be much more impacted than communities that have access to health care and, and in general that have wealth. We have a question here. Um, of what do you think were the biggest advantages besides monetary access the COVID vaccine had over previous vaccine studies, which led to it being developed so fast? Kind of a loaded question there, but if you're ready to tackle it, I'd love to hear your answer. Yeah, that's not exactly an easy question to answer. Obviously, the monetary part of it, when you throw money into anything, amazing things can potentially happen. And that was certainly part of it in some ways. Uh, but what I, I think there was more behind it, and I actually believe there is a gray area that exists that some people probably don't think about. Uh, so number one, this pandemic has been catastrophic uh, and it's had a, a tremendous global impact right everywhere around the world. And you have some labs that never studied uh, SARS-CoV-2 COVID before and they dropped what they were doing to study the basic biology of the virus. So it was a it was really a concerted effort from a lot of people. The virus in particular, it's a very opportunistic virus. And the way it sees us humans is that we're all the same. There's no bias based on race, skin color, or social class. It will infect us the same way, and it does not care about that. One of the reasons that this was fairly easier to, to tackle compared to some other pathogens that we've been developing vaccines against it because it does not mutate as rapidly. I sort of mentioned this with HIV. Uh, HIV has been in development for many, many decades at this point, and we still do not have a recognized, reliable vaccine that could be used uh, in humans. And the reason for that is HIV has a very, very significant and quick mutation rate. SARS-CoV-2 is different. So we lucked out on that front. It could have been much worse. Also, we hit a, just about the year mark since the stock market crashed and we had its lowest mark. I think that's really significant too. We have a lot of important people or who we do deem important people lose a lot of money during that time. And when wealthy people are losing money, things can happen quickly at that time. And I think there is an underlying you know, current that existed that there was going to be a push no matter what. So obviously it's affecting everybody and we needed a vaccine. Um, but when you have you know wealthy people and people in power that have the ability to make things happen, if it's going to benefit them, I think that's going to be the case. And I believe that's part of it. And the reason I say that is if we compare it to the HIV epidemic, if we're asked most individuals in the developed nations in the Western hemisphere, is HIV AIDS still an issue? A lot of people will say no, because they've heard that we have different types of antiviral drugs and therapeutics and prophylactics to you know, tackle that virus and allow people who are infected with the virus to live a very long life. However, that's not the case in South Africa, Southeast Asia, where the epidemic is still alive and well and people are dying. Um, and I, I can't help to think if the SARS-CoV-2 was having that sort of um, you know, if HIV was still having that sort of impact here, that this would be a major, major issue. And we probably would have developed a vaccine by now. But because that's not the case, and we've developed antivirals that will allow people to live on a very long life, uh, it's not as big of a deal. 
So th I think there are multiple things, multiple aspects in play here uh, that has that ha really had to do that were kind of behind the scenes of what was going on with the development of this vaccine and, and why there was such a push to do it so quickly. So with the start of the pandemic, it was a learning curve for everyone, you know, in every industry and especially in academia because it is relied on, especially in biology, you have to go in, do wet labs. It helps to be there to learn. So I guess from a professor perspective, you know, how have you been, um, you know, supporting yourself and also supporting your students during this time, whether that be on Zoom or I don't know if you're in person now, but yeah, anything that you can touch upon with that. Sure. Yeah. Since the pandemic started, I have been working solely online. And uh, one of the main reasons for that is my wife uh, became pregnant during the pandemic and we had our first baby uh, December 20th, 2020. Uh, so we didn't want to take a chance of, of risking anything. And that comes back from the, well, it's really a humanity perspective and just a you know, future father looking out for you know, his wife and his baby but also uh, being part of uh, seeing what happened with the Zika virus epidemic a few years ago and the way individuals and babies were born with microcephaly, misshaped heads and all sorts of issues. Um, there wasn't just enough, there wasn't enough data for what would happen if women uh, get infected with uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, while they're pregnant. And again, I was very perturbed uh, by what happened a number of years ago with the Zika virus epidemic. So for that reason, and in addition, I teach a lot of very large classes here at Lehigh University. <clears throat> I thought it was uh, safe uh, for myself, but more importantly, my family, if I were to teach online. Um, so again, if you bring this back to a, a professor's perspective, here I am, spring 2020, uh, my first semester really ever as a professor in this sort of role. And I felt like I was finally getting my, my feet underneath me. Uh, as you know, uh, you know, being a professor can be very intense, especially when you teach um, some of the large classes. I teach uh, Bios 41, which is a, a, a very large, roughly 250 student class for biology majors, for pre-med majors. Um, so I was teaching that at the time. I was also teaching a microbiology lab class. And, and I remember receiving a, an, a text message from uh, one of my best friends and a fantastic colleague, uh, Dr. Uh, Michael Kuchka, who is a professor in the biology department. And I received the message on Tuesday of spring break. And he said, Larry, uh, I don't want to scare you, but Lehigh's thinking about uh, remote learning and moving online for, for the next two weeks. And uh, I was scared because I had no idea how to deliver content online. And so that was somewhat problematic for me. Um, so I'll tell you, you know, my brief experience and, and what I went through. My first lecture that I delivered to my Bias 41 students uh, as, at the start of online learning, I narrated a PowerPoint slideshow. And I was telling them, hey, look up to the upper left-hand corner of the screen, see this bonnet's being made, yes, that's what happens. Or look on the lower left-hand corner of the screen, or look over here, look over there. I upload the lecture, it was either a Sunday night or a Monday, it was probably a Sunday night, and students, they watched the lecture that Monday, and that morning I woke up to probably about three or four emails from students saying, hey, it's really hard to understand where you're pointing us and what direction, and I, I'm not comprehending this material. And I told our students uh, when we learned that we're going to be moving online, I sent a very heartfelt message to them because uh, they really mean the world to me. And I told them that we're all going to have to adapt and uh, learn how to get through this together. But most importantly, we're going to be in it together. So that was really a call of action for myself. And I, I learned that I was going to have to figure out a new way to deliver content to them. So I spent the rest of that day learning the Panopto system, which at the time was somewhat daunting. But now looking back, it's a very easy system to use. And I immediately went to that uh, platform. And my next lecture was 100 times better. And I received uh, quite a few emails from students 
um, saying that, which was uh, encouraging for me as a professor because you never really know what's uh, going through the minds of a, of a student. Uh, something else that really was problematic for me, um, when I said goodbye to my students before spring break, I had no idea that was the last time that I was going to see a lot of them as some had moved on to graduate. Uh, some of them may not be in future classes with me again. And that took me probably a solid month or the rest of the semester to get through. Like that was just like a pain in my heart in a way that I really struggled with. Um, you know, losing that connection uh, with your students. And, and really that's why I signed on for, for a job in a position like this is to interact with students and to really educate um, this generation of scientists. Um, so that was, it was really tough. Um, I eventually got through it. Uh, the rest of uh, the, that first semester in, in quarantine and uh, through online learning, it worked out pretty smoothly for my microbiology lab class. Uh, we, we actually had a lot of online work that was planned after spring break, so it couldn't have been any better timing. And then in the fall term, uh, I stuck with the online learning platform where I taught Core 2, which is our genetics, and that's a very large class, so I couldn't have taught that in person if I wanted to. And we, I ran a biochemistry lab completely virtually, and I thought, what better time than now to, to start teaching students how COVID-19 works in this SARS-CoV-2 virus. So what we did was we used a lot of online platforms to develop a virtual vaccine against SARS-CoV-2. And I thought it was fantastic. Students did a really good job with uh, developing this virtual vaccine. And I, and I feel like they left this virtual classroom with a lot of capability to actually move into uh, a real wet lab setting and actually do uh, work and experiments, uh, which was very uh, satisfying and uh, rewarding for me. I could also speak from the professor's perspective uh, on how others had transitioned to online learning. It was very difficult. For me, I immediately tried to figure out ways to, to make things better. I purchased uh, an iPad Pro and an Apple Pencil and I started creating my own uh, educational videos, something analogous to if you had a uh, piece of chalk and a chalkboard and everyone was in the classroom, we could uh, learn together by me writing and drawing things out. So I did that quite a bit um, in, the, in the fall term and that was one way that I adapted to online learning. And honestly, I feel like I would be a better educational uh, professor because of this in my experience. But a lot of other professors, um, they, they struggled with learning these online platforms. I had extensive conversations with um, a really good colleague of mine. Her name's Holly Zakos, and, and she's part of LTS. And she helped me a lot with how to do things online and, and different types of uh, platforms that, that Lehigh offers. And she mentioned that um, there are other professors who are really trying but struggling in different ways. And uh, so it wasn't easy uh, by any stretch of the imagination for professors. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk about the student perspective in a second. Um, but what I gauged uh, from my students is that they, they had a lot more work since online learning began. And one of the reasons for that is this flipped classroom premise, which is based on a professor providing an asynchronous lecture to their students a day or two days in advance. And then during their regularly scheduled class time, they would meet and then discuss that. So when you have multiple professors uh, within the curriculum, uh, for our students who are doing that, it creates a tremendous amount of work. But I can assure you that that comes from a very good uh, place in their hearts and their educational philosophy. I was thinking about doing the same thing myself. In hindsight, I'm really happy and I'm simply just lucky I didn't do that and I maintained a lot of the typical continuity that we would have in a classroom. Um, and the reason that professors wanna do that, uh, they wanna make sure that students are learning, right? The, that MCAT exam that a lot of our students are gonna take a few years from now or depending on what level of education you are here at Lehigh, um, that doesn't change. You still have to learn the content. So if you aren't gonna be in a classroom, um, we tried to figure out different ways to make sure we could relay that information to you and fortify it. And that was one of the methods that professors used. Other professors, instead of having your typical four semester exams, 
your two, three semester exams, they broke that up into like 20 quizzes for the semester. And that was their way of, you know, making sure that students stay on top of things, but not having these very high stake examinations. And, you know, that has been a common complaint from quite a few students. But again, it comes from a very good place. It was meant to not give students more work. It was really meant to you know, help them with their education and work with them uh, through a lot of uh, smaller assignments where not everything is impacted by you know, one exam grade per se. Yeah, thank you. That was a, a great perspective. And I think it's really important to draw from that that our professors aren't the bad guys. I know that it may seem like it, especially because we're under a tremendous amount of stress ourselves, but we need to remember that our professors are humans too. And so they had to really go through a huge transition period. And, you know, we do have a varying age range of staff. And so I'm sure it was maybe more difficult for people who aren't as familiar, you know, some of the older professors that ha just haven't used as much, you know, maybe like the newer Apple products or technology to kind of take a step back and really learn um, the ins and outs of how to give their students the best experience. Um, but I think you really had a great point in saying that as a professor, you were able to make observations about your students. And so could you kind of go into that about how what did you see from your students, you know, the, from the struggling aspect, from the schoolwork, the level of quality of work? What's kind of your perspective on that? Yeah. Um, so from, from my perspective, when the pandemic began and we transitioned to online learning, I was worried that my students were going to treat it like a vacation because at that point in time, we thought it was going to be for about two weeks or so. And boy, was I wrong on so many levels and fronts. Um, so they did not treat it like a vacation in any way. And that was actually the furthest from the truth. And I'm actually quite saddened by what a lot of my students had to go through with this pandemic. So in addition to losing loved ones, which is the worst possible thing that could happen through a time like this, and it really puts education to the side, when those around you were passing away uh, due to you know COVID-19. Um, students, they lost a lot. They lost the social interactions with their peers, which is an absolute major part of the college experience. When I reflect on my time as an undergraduate student, I'm not necessarily thinking about the times I was in the classroom, thinking about the, the people who I met along the way. And, uh, and that hasn't changed over the last number of years uh, since I was an undergraduate student. Uh, they lost the interactions with their professors and the ability to just uh, ask questions, which is really tough for a lot of students. Um, and, then, and then things even more difficult than some of that, their parents lost jobs. And because of that, some have transferred to other universities closer to home to get part-time work to help and offset some of the costs that the parents are you know incurring with their typical bills they have had to um, i've had students who uh, do not have uh, proper internet connectivity and that's for a variety of reasons where parents can't afford to uh, pay the the internet bill on a monthly basis or parents have uh, very limited uh, data plans or they've had to downgrade their data plan and now the students they are with uh, their other siblings who may be younger or older who are relying on the internet for education and you know we all had to adapt and I, I certainly made so many exceptions for students who went through a lot of this um, this became much more in my opinion than uh, you know me just trying to make sure that students are learning exactly the material that I want them to learn uh, was more than that. I needed to make sure that I was there for them in some way that where I could help them and, and you know, be a shoulder to lean on in some in certain cases. And and it did work like that. Uh, there is a whole, you know, this whole psychological aspect of it. And it's a systemic thing that ran its course through Lehigh with students and it's ran its course with students all around the country. I noticed this even with my top-notch students. I'm talking upper percentile um, intelligence here at Lehigh. 
they struggled in so many ways, they were depressed in so many ways. Uh, they would, you know, most students, you guys are waking up in the morning, early in the morning, you jump on the computer, and then you're, you're off the computer by, you know, midnight that same day because you had these Zoom meetings, uh, flip classroom settings, uh, and everything else that's associated with that. And that can become incredibly monotonous and really wear on you. And in the psyche of an 18 to a 22 to 23-year-old, uh, that's that's a particularly vulnerable population. When I think about, you know, at, when I developed as a as a human being, and maybe I developed uh, at a later stage than most individuals, but the person who I was at 18 to 20 years old is certainly not who I am now. Um, there's a certain level of maturity that that changes. So if I were to think about what I would have experienced at your age, uh, it would have been exactly the same. Um, so it was really tough. So one way that I tried to just lend a helping hand in addition to other things I was doing for certain students who were going through very tough times, I create these things I would call a Zoom hangout sessions. And I would do them on Friday nights. And I was very, I was sort of mischievous with choosing Friday nights for these Zoom hangout sessions. And that's because Friday night's a typical time when students are going to obviously go out and hang out with their friends. And, and this is before vaccinations were readily available and people were getting sick and bad things were happening during the pandemic. So I wanted to try to prevent that in some way. And these Zoom hangout sessions, it was really a very safe place. Nothing was being recorded. Nothing really, nothing was said to any other professors or individuals who may have been brought up in certain ways. And it was a place where students could come together. They could discuss their experiences with the pandemic and online learning and life in general. And they, in some ways, they build up a camaraderie amongst their peers by coming to these sessions. They may have been taking, you know, X, Y, and Z course and experienced the same things that other students who are taking A, B, and C course. And ultimately, we all wanted to cry, but the best thing to do if you're not going to cry, it's good to laugh. And students were laughing and joking. Uh, I was, I didn't even run these sessions. I was sort of just there. And you know, I would ask certain questions to keep conversations going at some point, but it really took on a life of its own. And I found it to be a really nice uh, utility to, to sort of facilitate something that's different to our students other than teaching them about the central dogma of biology. So for me, that's a, that's, that was a point in time that um, is very memorable to me. And I still do this. And in certain things that I do now is, just recently, I brought in a, a former colleague of mine who was a third-year student at Drexel Medi Medical School. And he came in and he spoke about his experiences on what he had to do to, to go to medical school and things like that. And, and the reason I do that, I'll bring in some of my former colleagues who are professionals in different fields, whether it's research. Just as recent as yesterday, I may have mentioned this earlier in the podcast, I brought in a, a friend of mine, actually two friends of mine, uh, one who helped really develop the Zika virus vaccine and then another one who had a very uh, large role in the COVID-19 vaccine. So I tried to bring in my people to for my students to understand that there's an end goal here. And I don't want them to lose light of what they want to do in their career and their profession. And I don't want them to just sort of sit on their hands during the pandemic and just assume that everything is going to be okay and everything's going to work itself out. We still have to work hard. We still have to keep our our career goals and objectives in sight. So I bring my friends in so they can see that these people are still doing these things. It gives them an opportunity for the students to ask questions of these people and to learn from their experiences. And, and then they can take that with them. And uh, so those are some of the things that I've been doing uh, with online learning and then outside of online learning too. That's incredible. And thank you for ex you know explaining that and sharing your perspective. And I think a big message is like a message of hope you know everyone wants what's best for each other and we're really trying to be all in and get through this together and as we see you know it's working on lehigh's campus things are getting better we're able to have more in-person opportunities and so there's a light at the end of the tunnel you know through the vaccination process through you know people having a better mindset an optimistic mindset and professors really looking out for the best interests of their students, but also keeping in mind what's best for them. And I think once everyone's on board with that, we're kind of be kind of 
unstoppable in a way of getting through this together. Okay, so I guess, you know, a bit of a fun question, if you could touch upon some of your most memorable moments throughout your career, your education, um, anything that just sticks out to you as a formative experience? Uh, So many moments to choose from, for sure. Um, If I were to kind of piecemeal it, uh, during my master's degree, the latter part of uh, my degree before I graduated, I had an opportunity to go out to Alaska and trek on glaciers in order to retrieve some of these organisms that we study and send them back to our, our lab in New Jersey at Rutgers University. So that was really amazing. Uh, Alaska is such a beautiful place. It's truly the last frontier. Um, you could go there and spend months upon months just exploring and hiking. Uh, it's just absolutely gorgeous. Um, so it was a really nice way to, to sort of put the cherry on top of my master's degree and have that opportunity. Uh, after that, uh, my PhD at the University of Florida was a very special time for me. Um, I joined, that's, again, as I mentioned earlier, that's where my beginnings as a virologist uh, started. And there are two defining moments during a PhD. The, the first is the qualifying exam, and I refer to this as um, the time when you get beat into a gang. And what that really means is, uh, I think that analogy is very appropriate. You develop a plan for what you're going to do research-wise for the next few years and you go behind closed doors with a committee members, which it could be anywhere from three to five. At the University of Florida, it was five committee members. And we were bombarded with questions about our NIH-style proposal that we had written and our plans for uh, the next three, four years of research. And that is a very uh, daunting process. And of course, as a early young graduate student, you hear, horror stories of others who have put themselves in that situation, have gone into that room, they have left crying, they have left failing the exam, and, and all of those things I realized are actually you know, real possibilities. Um, I have friends who, you could, you could either have a full pass once you get through that exam, uh, a conditional pass, which means you are delinquent in one specific area, and you need to brush upon those skills and come back and present again to your committee members uh, within three months or so. Or you may be asked to leave the program and you'll leave with a master's degree. And I didn't want anybody to prevent me from getting my PhD. Uh, so I made sure to be you know, as prepared as I could be. You can never be truly prepared for an exam like that. But I was as prepared um, as I thought was possible. And I made it through with a full pass. And uh, it worked out very well for me. Uh, some of my colleagues and my friends, they said it's a very anticlimactic feeling. Uh, that, that wasn't the case for me. I really relished in that for the next six months immediately. Uh, so I, I even remember the day, I think it was October 8th, 2009, when I passed the qualifying exam. And uh, that weekend, I took a very long weekend. I went straight to the beach to celebrate with friends and uh, I enjoyed that moment. Uh, one of the other moments that is very special is the PhD dissertation defense. This is the culmination of all the work that you have completed over those last you know, four to six years. And my dissertation defense day, which was uh, July 15th, 2013, I'm in the biochemistry and molecular biology uh, conference room. And this is a place where I've given probably 100 presentations through lab meetings, through uh, journal club presentations, and so forth. And I look out into the audience, and, and, and the first part of it is an oral presentation, and, and friends and family can come. So here it is, my, my two worlds are colliding. I have my scientific friends and my scientific world and mentors, and then also my parents, other family members, and friends who came in from New Jersey. And that was very, it's hard to describe a moment like that. Um, it was very special, but also um, nerve-wracking for me. It was one of the first times in my life where I actually felt like I had uh, anxiety just thinking about that. My parents being in a room and someone asked me a question I couldn't answer and I looked like an idiot. And uh, turns out that wasn't really the case. So we had the, the oral portion of this. And then everybody leaves the room, again, except my committee members. So uh, here I am uh, behind closed doors with them. and. 
they're asking me more questions, although in this case it's not really the same type of questions that you're asked during a qualifying exam. And um, by the end of the questionnaire portion, uh, you're asked to leave the room while they deliberate your future, if you're worthy or not of receiving a PhD. And so I left the room, I was outside for about five to 10 minutes, certainly the longest five to 10 minutes of my life. I felt very confident that uh, I was going to pass and, and be awarded the PhD, but you never truly know. Um, so they called me back into the room, all of the committee members stood up and it was my mentor, her name's Dr. Mavis Gabanji McKenna. Uh, she was the first person to stand up shake my hand and say congratulations Dr. Tartaglia, which was a very special moment for me. Um, immediately after that, I uh, met up with the family and, and the rest of the lab and we had champagne and cake and I was sort of celebrated. I felt like a king for, for the rest of the day and um, it was a very, very, very special time. So when I really reflect back on my time as a, as a student leading up to becoming a professor, a lot of it's about the relationships that I've developed. And I had a particularly very strong one uh, with my PhD mentor. Again, Dr. Mavis Ubanji McKenna, um, where our personalities, our philosophies, they meshed on many levels. And for any graduate students who are listening to this right now, you learn that the mentee-mentor relationship is, is kind of like a marriage, uh, for better or for worse, and it, it can go both ways. For me, it was certainly for better. And um, she was, uh, she's, a, she's a person where uh, she taught me so much uh, professionally and personally. And uh, she, she's someone who means a great deal to me. And unfortunately, uh, she passed away uh, a number, just a few weeks ago, actually. She had a very long battle with ALS. And uh, certainly a, a very proud moment for me was um, I had the opportunity this semester to develop a, a new virology course at Lehigh University. So I sent her my syllabus back in January before the semester started. And uh, the truth is I didn't really need her advice on anything because I, I, I was pretty happy with how everything looked. But what I wanted to do was just pick her brain anyway. I wanted her to feel like she was part of it. And I, I uh, asked her some questions I asked her, you know, what viruses she thought would be particularly relevant for students to to uh, tackle and learn about this semester. And and in her fashion, she emailed me back almost immediately with a list of ten different viruses and said, uh, "Larry, if you need more, just let me know." And uh, I decided to follow up with her, ask her for more. And and there was another ten viruses that are important to understand uh, that I was I was provided with. Um, so again, to to really. Uh, reflect back on this, um, you know, after she had passed, uh, I had to teach a virology class. It was the first virology class after she had passed, which was the next day. And I was thinking about just canceling the class because I didn't know how I was going to get through it. And it was going to be really tough. And I knew that. Um, but I decided to not do that because she would have been very mad at me if I would have. So I dedicated the class to her. Thank you so much for sharing that perspective, Larry, Dr. Tartaglia. Um, it's been such an eye-opening experience and session, just hearing every single perspective that you've had and experience. Um, you know, we have more podcasts coming up in the future. Maybe we'll see you again. Who knows? Um, so tune in next week for our next podcast. It was really great speaking with you both. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, in my short time here at Lehigh, this has certainly been one of the highlights um, to being asked to, to do something like this and to share some of my experiences over the last year. So I can't thank the two of you enough. Um, it's so appreciative, but also for my students, just to let them know that there's much more to science than what they learn in the textbook.